Good morning. Our reading today is from Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast, of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. You may have a seat. It's great to be with you, family, on this third Sunday of Advent. Uh, we'll continue in our study of waiting uh, in the Psalms, in particular, here over the past few weeks. And today we're looking, of course, at joy, uh, joy and waiting. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will uh, see what the Lord has for us here this morning. Father, we are so grateful that we are here and that you have called us here and that we have stepped out on a, on a cold morning, maybe with uh, various obstacles to overcome, uh, some of them physical, some of them perhaps spiritual, to be here this morning to worship you. And so we want to thank you, we want to acknowledge that, that we need your help, uh, that you know, left to our own devices, we, we would not wait with joy. In fact, we wouldn't wait for you at all. We would uh, indulge our own uh, flesh, that we would uh, seek after lesser joys and uh, far lesser loves. Help, help us to see you as our, our greatest treasure and our greatest joy and that we, uh, in this season where we mark anticipation of the second coming of Christ, as we look back on the first coming, I pray that we would be a joyful people, that as we have said so often here at City Church, that you would, in our hearts, create a revival of joyful worship. And we know that you're pleased to do such things as we've heard that you are singing over us with joy. And so we take great comfort in that. Spirit, I pray that you would help uh, take the words here in Psalm 33 and have them come to, li come to life in our hearts, that you would uh, exhort us, that you encourage us, challenge us. If that is your desire, we, we desperately want to become and look more like Christ. 
And so we, we ask in faith in his name. Amen. One, one of the clear things that this psalm says right off the bat, if you uh, see there in the first few verses, is that we uh, are a people that can shout for joy, that we can sing with loud singing. Every church has a, has a personality, and so I know that uh, in general, our church is not necessary, uh, necessarily given over to great shouts of joy or uh, loud shouts of singing, although I love when I first uh, come up here to the uh, front row, I love hearing you guys sing. And normally we, we sit in the back and can't hear all of you singing quite as loudly as when I come up front. And I'm always encouraged. This, this psalm gives us permission to do such thing. Uh, this psalm gives us permission to uh, raise our hands and lift our voices and, and praise our good God with joy. And, and I love that Miss Beverly says amen. Uh, there is great joy in the Lord. And we can see here in this hymn of praise that is describing joyful worship that we can be encouraged to find our joy in the Lord. As I mentioned, we've been in the, the Psalms over the past few weeks. We've looked at uh, what it looks like to wait, this whole theme of waiting or anticipation as we look to the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the same time, we are remembering the first coming of Christ, the first Christmas. And so this is a season where we want to see what the Word of God has to say to us about waiting. And so two weeks ago, we, we uh, considered together courage in our waiting. Last week, we looked at being obedient as we wait on the Lord. And this morning, of course, we're looking at joy, joy in anticipation. If you have uh, been using our family advent guides this season, uh, you've uh, seen that one of the weeks, I think it's the first week, uh, we have the story of uh, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, and then Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, and they come together, the relatives, and in that story in the first chapter of Luke, the unborn baby, John the Baptist, leaps with joy in the womb of Elizabeth. He leaps with joy in anticipation of the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of the Messiah. And that same passage immediately after, Mary sings a song of great joy. We call it the Magnificat. This is a, a, a song that Mary breaks out into because she can't contain the joy giving praise to God for the son that she is carrying, the Savior of the world. So waiting for both the first coming of Jesus and now the second coming of Christ brings joy. There is joy in waiting. Raise your hand if you're in here and you're under the age of 12. Not a few. Not you, Matt. I see Matt Van Wy raising his hand. So a few, 12. So joy in waiting, kids. Would you say as you wait for Christmas Day, which is now just over a week away, are you waiting with joy? Is it hard to wait for joy? I would say even as a 46-year-old, it is hard to wait for the thing that I'm so anticipating and so wanting. It's so often this waiting seems like torture, but I hope that we will find today that waiting on the Lord is not really a, an exercise in torture or futility or frustration, although our sin has made it that way so often, but ultimately we're supposed to be waiting, we're called to wait with great joy. If you're taking notes this morning on the handout, you can see that the main idea 
that we want to look at is that we joyfully wait on the Lord because he loves us. Very simple. We joyfully wait on the Lord because he loves us. Psalm 33 expresses joy by uh, exhorting us to sing a new song. See that there in the first few verses. We're called to sing a new song. We sing a new song because we have new mercies every day. Every day there are new mercies. Every day there's a song to sing. Every day there's a day where we are waiting. I believe this psalm is pointing us to three specific reasons why we joyfully wait on the Lord. Those three reasons are because of his good word, because of his glorious plans, and because of his great salvation. His good word, his glorious plans, and his great salvation. First, we joyfully wait on the Lord because of his good word. We see there in verse 4 that for the, the word of the Lord is uprights. The word of the Lord is good and righteous. And then you see there in verse 6 that uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So we see that this word is good, it's upright, it's righteous, and it creates that by the word of God, all things were created. We're meant to think of Genesis 1 as we read this part of the psalm. God speaks, all of creation is made. He speaks and it comes to be. You see that there in verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be. God's word does and it is good. God word, God's word has an action. It accomplishes something every time that it goes forth and it is good, it is upright, it is righteous. And because God is sovereign and good, his created order, what he has spoken into creation is inherently good. All things that he made are good because he is good. Now sin has marred God's creation. Sin has marred what good design God had set forth by his word, but we still see his majesty his goodness in creation. This was, this was a certain uh, different creation account than so many of the other ancient Near East creation accounts. Uh, I don't know if you've ever taking, taken a look at that, but most all of the other creation accounts were on account of uh, gods, plural, fighting one another, devouring one another. In order to get their way, they create the earth as a spoils of war. So all the other creative narr creation narratives have nothing to do with goodness or uprightness or righteousness or love that we see here in Psalm 33 that all the earth, everything in it, is full of his steadfast love. The true God of the universe is both omnipotent and steadfastly loving. It is so crucial as the people of God, that you and I remember that God is not just sovereign, he's not just able to create all things by the word of his mouth, but that he is also good. Those two things have to be united with one another. He is good and he's omnipotent. And so we can take joy in our smallness and in our inability to speak and have anything just be created in an instant we should find joy in our smallness because the bigness of God loves us so. We find joy in our smallness because we are loved in his bigness. 
So we joyfully wait on the Lord because of his good word. His word is good, and his word accomplishes whatever it sets forth. The second reason that we are called to joyfully wait on the Lord, because of his glorious plans. His plans. Look at there, look there in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. So here is, in this psalm, the first time that we are confronted with the reality of sin. Because we're reading that there are peoples and their plans are being frustrated. There are kingdoms whose counsel is empty. It comes to nothing. God was sovereign, not, not just at the time of creation, but now we see that he is sovereign at this time as well, even today. He is the God of creation. He's the God of history. He holds all things together and even today is working out all of his purposes and plans. When we read verse 10, where we see the counsel of the nations come to nothing, it might have us remembering Psalm 2. If, if you go back to Psalm 2, you'll read this in the first four, uh, first four verses of Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sets in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Godless people will pursue godless plans. This is, this is what sin has done. This is what sin has wrought in the heart of man. Godless people will pursue godless plans. People planning and plotting in vain, taking counsel together against the Lord. And what does Psalm 2 say? What does the Lord do from heaven? He laughs. He laughs. He holds them in derision. He laughs at their futility. 2024, it's almost here, an election year. God help us. Here we go. And what we're going to hear a lot about and already have heard a lot about are the plans and the platforms of the culture and the politicians and the council around us. And we live, by and large, in a culture and a time where there is, uh, it's a culture of death and dehumanization and, and desecration. We see these things play out all the time around us. And we get here to the promise that's found in verse 10 of Psalm 33, and it says, all of it will come to nothing. The plans of the people are frustrated. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the plans of the people, the, the governments, the kingdoms that are holding counsel, do you believe that they will come to nothing? Do you believe that it will be ultimately empty? Ultimately, we do know that all wickedness and all rebellion against God will be destroyed. Going back to Psalm 2, if we read verse 12, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to go back there. This is Psalm 2, verse 12. It says, kiss the son, S-O-N, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
If the peoples refuse to kiss the Son, in other words, if they refuse to honor Jesus as King and Lord of all things, they will be, on the day of judgment, fully and finally brought to nothing. The council of the nations, the people that are plotting in vain, the people that have set themselves up against God and his people will come to nothing. They will be coming to ruin instead. And we don't say these things with a with a smile on our faces, what we've said often here at City Church, that we want to acknowledge that there is, uh, there, there are enemies of God. That in many ways, we're looking at the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. They're not two equal forces battling it out. The kingdom of God has one. It's broken through into darkness and death, and it will continue to grow and find full flourishing when the, on the day that Jesus comes back. Those things are very true, but we can be sober-minded about the fact that there are some that will perish, that there will be some who have set themselves up against God and will come to nothing. That's the reality that we heartbreakingly know is a part of our world. But here in Psalm 33, the people of God are not cursed. The people of God are actually Blessed, you see that there in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We read about a blessed people, a royal nation of sons and daughters who have been chosen as his heritage. God's plans are not frustrated. His plans stand forever, and we, the people of God, his church, are blessed. We're blessed. You might ask, how, how are we blessed? Well, actually, Zane, in the psalm right before this, in Psalm 32, shared with us what the psalmist said, what David said in Psalm 32, uh, blessed are the ones whose sins have been forgiven. We're blessed because our accounts, our uh, rebellion against God, our, our shortcomings, our sins have been nailed to the cross. They no longer have hold over us. We're blessed. Our sins have been forgiven. Psalm 1 says, The blessed one is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We no longer are identified with a rebellious, wicked people. We no longer have to take their counsel and walk with them. Ephesians 1 says, God's purpose for us was set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven. And things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's our story this morning. That's, that's where we are, the people of Christ. In him. This is the redemption plan of God. The plan of God set, set forth before the world was created, before time itself uh, was a thing, that in Christ we would be found redeemed. Redeemed from our brokenness, redeemed from our sin. And yet, we do, if we're honest, struggle to believe these things. If anything, we, we, we always want to strive for gospel honesty, not just here on Sunday morning, but every day of the week. And gospel honesty brings us to the, 
to the reality that we struggle so often to believe that the things that Psalm 33 is telling us are true. We do struggle with it. We, we struggle with seeing that the plans of the people, of the council of the nation, it doesn't seem like they're coming to nothing. If, if we're honest, we turn on the news, we scroll on our social media, or if you happen to get a newspaper, maybe you get a physical newspaper and turn even to page one or two or even down into page 10, you're going to be confronted constantly with the plans of the people and the counsel of the wicked. And if we're honest, it doesn't seem like they're being frustrated. The psalmist here in Psalm 33 says that the nations are coming to nothing, that he's frustrating the plans of the people. It doesn't seem like that so often. I think we can be honest about that. We have innocent people right now being murdered in China, in the Middle East. We, we have uh, statues of Satan being erected in the state capital of Iowa this week. Uh, we have a former president saying he'll be a dictator for a day, and on and on we could go. That's just this week. Those are three things from this week, and we, we absorb that, and we try to understand what's going on, and how in the world, with, a, with an honest heart, with all integrity, can we say the, the plans of the people are being frustrated, because it looks like the plans of the people are winning the day. We will live in anxiety and despair if we forget Genesis 50, 20. Genesis 50, 20, the words of Joseph to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. God will frustrate the plans of the people and bring about his good purposes. Now, I confess, I don't know how that works all the time. And if we're honest, we don't know how that works all the time because we are not God. We are not sovereign. We are not able to see all things, the beginning and the end and everything in between. So I don't know how some of the things that are so wicked and horrible in this world can be worked out for good. But God says they will. God says they will. Do you believe that this morning? That God will use the things that are horrible, the things that he hates. God hates evil. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. Do you believe that he will use the things that he hates to bring about that which is good? And if we needed the premier example of what that looks like, we, we only have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. There, the, the cross, the, the biggest injustice in all of history, that which was meant to be wickedness, to murder Jesus, was the very way that God brought about his plan to recreate the world. The very thing that was meant for evil ultimately was for good. On the cross, God's plans will not be frustrated God will not be frustrated. And I know that it looks bleak at times. And I know we could get scared a lot of the times. But God's plans won't be frustrated. Now, what happens when we, as the people of God, feel as if our plans are being frustrated? 
Because if we're honest, we can look around the world, at the world around us, at, at our culture, at, at look in the news, and we can see these things that are happening. And at the same time, we, whose hearts are united to Jesus Christ, who love him and follow him and joyfully worship him, if we're honest again, we also know that there are so many times where our plans seem to be frustrated. That the plans and, that we have in our own minds and hearts are the ones that are not coming to fruition. What happens when our plans are frustrated? When Molly and I uh, were first married, we, we put an offer on a house not too far from here in Arlington Heights. We loved this house. We, we, we could picture ourselves moving in. We, we were moving along in the process, and almost at the 11th hour, it fell through. You talk about frustration and plans that uh, didn't come to fruition. And some of you might relate. Some of you might have been in a similar position where you've had your heart set on something and at the 11th hour it fell through. In 2019, we were going to send the boys to a, a different school district when we were living in our old neighborhood. They had been accepted by this school. It was a, you had to uh, be accepted based on application and availability. And in March, we were told the boys had a uh, position at the school. Uh, and then the week before school started, the principal called and said, no, they don't have a spot. Frustrated plans. What are we going to do? Now, the, those two things were hard. God has answered uh, prayers and, and moved us through those frustrations. And ultimately, we wouldn't be where we are today if those things hadn't happened. Didn't know that at the time. Obviously, couldn't have uh, written that story or predicted it. Now, I know a lot of you are going through much weightier things than a house that didn't come to fruition or a school that didn't work out. There are ways in which our, our plans are frustrated in the fact that we never thought we would be burying that person, never thought we'd be burying a child. We didn't think that the routine doctor visit would turn into such a hard diagnosis. We didn't think that we would be at this place where we're scouring job openings looking for a job. And somehow, even in our sorrow and our confusion and our frustration, we know that all things work together for good in the life of the believer because he is good. His word is good and his plans are glorious. I don't, I don't say those things flippantly. I know that there, there is this caution that we always want to take when we think about that verse in Romans 8 that all things work together for good in the life of the believer. And when we're in the midst of frustration, when we're in the midst of sorrow and confusion and we don't understand why this has happened, that we could say those things that they can land on us in a way that seems trite. But let us not, not say it, right? He works all things for good for those who love him. Finally, we wait joyfully on the Lord because of his great salvation. His great salvation. Look at verse 13 with me. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. He sees all of us. He sees all our deeds. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And what does the psalmist say? As God looks down from heaven and sees what we're doing, knows our hearts because he's made us, what does the psalmist say that he does. Look at verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army, 
A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. God looks down from heaven, and what he sees are people, he sees you and me and everyone that we know, striving for salvation, looking for deliverance, looking for rescue, but we're looking at it in the horizontal only. We only look out this direction, and what God says is you haven't looked up. You haven't looked up for rescue, for salvation. Worldly means of strength, worldly strategy and power will not bring salvation. This is what the psalm says, that all the things that we can look for and the strength and the, and the magic of this world, we are not rescued or delivered by God because we are Americans. I think we, we so frequently can get swept up in that mindset that there's something special about the fact that we are Americans, although we thank God that we are. This is a wonderful country that he has blessed us with, that we have incredible freedoms and opportunities here that uh, the rest of the world, many countries in the world, would give everything for. We have unprecedented wealth. We have, uh, on average, higher education and literacy rates. We have a powerful reputation around the world, and yet none of it is salvific. None of it. If that's true on a national level, if that's true about this country, then it's true about us as individuals. It's true about you and me. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter what level of education you have achieved. It doesn't matter what kind of family you have come from. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. None of that we can cling to for deliverance. Can't. Those are worldly things on the whole. Those are, those are war horses those are things that we're looking for uh, in the strength and reputation of who we are and where we've come from to help deliver us and save us. doesn't work. So you might be asking, what does? What does deliver us? What does save us? Well, the psalmist tells us there, beginning in verse 18, verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The fact that God sees all, that the eye of the Lord is on you and me, will either bring incredible terror or unimaginable joy. The fact that God sees all will either bring terror or it will bring great joy. And so, Christian, the eye of the Lord is on you, those of us who hope in his steadfast love. He loves to save his own. He loves to rescue his own. In the midst of a fallen world with sin still clinging so closely in our own hearts and the people around us, the Lord desires and loves. He is singing over us because he loves to rescue us. He loves to save us. He is doing this work right now in your life and in this church. And when he returns, it will be so much more than just okay. When he comes back, it's going to be so much more than okay. 
Because everything will be okay, but when, when he returns, we will have unending and ever-increasing joy. So we wait. This is, this is the life we live. We wait. We wait. We wait with joy, though. Look how this psalm ends, beginning in verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Well, friends, sometimes our joy is loud. We see that here in the opening verses of this psalm. Sometimes our joy is loud. It shouts new songs. We proclaim with a loud voice his glory. And sometimes our joy is quiet. This psalm ends on a quieter note. Sometimes we are glad in heart, but it might be a bit more subdued. No matter if our joy is loud or our joy is quiet, we hope and we trust and our hearts are glad in him. The name of Jesus wins. The name of Jesus, friends, wins. His steadfast love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's Romans 5. This is his gospel word, his good gospel word. This is his plan, his glorious plan. This is his gospel salvation, his great salvation. It's all found here. The one who came into this world in weakness as a baby in a manger. The good word of the Lord made flesh as a baby grew in stature and wisdom, and when he was crucified, he came in weakness, he was crucified in weakness, and yet it was at that moment that he revealed to you and me what true strength is. That God spoke a word, in fact, God spoke his final word in Christ, and a new people united to him came to be. He spoke The final word on the cross, and you and I, who have been redeemed and recreated in Jesus Christ, came to be. What that means is that the recreated you has come to be. The old person, the old man, has come to nothing. That man has been frustrated to the utmost and has come to nothing. The cross is where weeping in the night gives way to joy in the morning. And one day, this king will ride in on his war horse with his great army. Armies and kings and horses actually will save us, but it's not the ones of this world. It's not the ones that we observe now or will ever observe on this earth. It's coming from heaven. Jesus will come on a great war horse with his great army, and he will take us home. And when we get there with him, there will be unending joy, ever-increasing joy, forever and ever and ever. So as we close this morning, the question is, how do we do this? How, how, How do we joyfully wait on the Lord? We know we should. We know we're called to. We desire to. But what does it look like? I have three points as we end. First one is we spread his word. We spread his word. Look at verse 8 with me. 
As I was reading this psalm this week, it actually struck me that verse 8 actually has some uh, evangelic uh, overtones, some evangelism attached to verse 8, which says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. There's a hope there. There's a recognition. There's a desire that all would call upon the name of the Lord and fear Him, that the entire earth would love the Lord. So let us share, let us spread that word. May we share the gospel with those around us, with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. We, we do so because we desire for them to share the same joy that we have. That that should be motivation for us as we look to evangelize, as we look to uh, spread our faith, as we look to uh, outreach our neighborhoods. We want to do that because we so desire the joy of the Lord to be with other people because we know what it's like for us. So we spread His Word. The next thing we do is savor His plan. We savor His plan. We remember that His plans for our lives are good. We've talked about this already, that His plan for you and me is good because He is good. And His plan for us will include suffering. It will include suffering. In the New Testament, James connects trials and suffering with joy. It's not something that you and I would ever do, but God is saying, and in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has come to do is saying, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of any kind. This is not easy. And so we need each other. We need each other to remind one another that God's plans are glorious even when there is suffering, even when trials come. Friends, we, we live a life of mingled tears. We live a life of mingled tears. You and I are going to cry on this side of heaven. Part of those tears are going to be sorrow. We're going to cry tears of sorrow. And then we will also cry tears of joy. And they're mingled together. That's this life. Tears of joy, tears of sorrow. Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is the life that we live. This is his plan for you and me. Let us savor that plan. Third thing we do is we sing his salvation. We sing his salvation. We sing loudly. We sing quietly. We sing through those tears. We sing with shouts of praise. I want to exhort uh, the parents in the room. Because we have an opportunity, especially dads, uh, we have the opportunity to set the joy thermostat in our homes. Uh, even as we were uh, talking before the service, as we always do, uh, we huddle in the back, especially with uh, volunteers who are downstairs in Kids City, and we talk about the sermon ahead of time. And there were several of us that talked about the joy seeming to be uh, escaping from our hearts and from our homes, that joy sometimes really hard to grasp onto the circumstances of our families, the way our kids are behaving, uh, the different frustrations that we might be finding at work. I don't know what it is with you. Dads, are we, are we setting a tone of joy and expectation? expectation in our homes. Even when things are hard, even when things are frustrating, is this, is this what you're doing in your home? Are you setting the thermostat so that it's glad-heartedness 
that is experienced in your home. Not a fake, sappy, silly happiness, but a deep-rooted joy, even when things are hard, even when things seem to be falling apart all around you. Could you say with all integrity, blessed be the name of the Lord, we find our joy in him. Are we glad-hearted as we joyfully wait on the Lord? We're going to sing his great salvation. I want to finish with a passage of a couple of verses that are particularly poignant to me. You, you might, I know you do, you have your own uh, parts of the Bible that you love more than others maybe. Uh, these two verses and Peter I've, I've allowed uh, to really encourage me and, and speak to me uh, during the course of my life as a believer. And so I feel like Peter is going to speak to the things that we're talking about here this morning. So this is how I'll finish the message with 1 Peter 8 and 9. Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. And Father, we do. We, we consider the salvation of our souls, what you have done, the plan before time set forth in Christ to redeem a people for himself, to rescue us out of sure death, to rescue us out of despair. As we are walking in, in sin and rebellion, you came for us while we were still sinners. Oh, that that would bring tremendous joy. Joy that you have ransomed and saved us. And we find joy as we wait. Even in the midst of suffering that we acknowledge uh, breaks us so often, that confuses us, that we wonder why these things are happening to us, and yet we, we know this is what you have promised, that joy will be mingled with trials and tears. And so we trust you. I pray for us at City Church that we would joyfully worship the Lord as we wait for you to return. In the midst of chaos and sin and a world that seems to not have its plans be frustrated, we trust you. We know you are working all things out and we know that they are good because you are good. So we are so grateful this morning and I pray that our joy would ever be increasing. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.